Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Previously on Bear Brook Season 2, a true crime story. You told us that Jason had admitted moving the car and was involved somewhat. The truth, the essence of the truth. I have not seen a breaking point in you. If you want a knife, if you want a knife in that woman, <laughs> I want to know. He stood up and he just said it was a bunch of bull crap and that uh, anything that he had said wasn't true. It's November 27th, 1989, the Monday after Thanksgiving. Tony Puff lands at the airport in Manchester, New Hampshire. Tony walks off the plane and then waves hello to Detective Roland Lammy and the other officers who are waiting for him. Tony has no idea that just two days ago, on Saturday, Jason Carroll confessed on tape to murdering Sharon Johnson. And Tony has no idea that while he was in the air, police taped a second confession from Jason. Right from the top again, Jason. When were you first contacted? July 27th, 1988. To do what? Kill Sharon Johnson. By who? Tony Puff. And Tony has no idea that on both of those tapes, Jason says Tony is guilty, too. When Tony got on a plane in North Carolina that morning, he thought he was coming to team up with detectives again, just like he had several months earlier when he wore a wire and tried to get Ken Johnson to admit to the murder. Detective Lammy and the other cops lead Tony outside to Lammy's car. It's November, and there's snow on the ground. Tony is wearing shorts and a T-shirt. He sits in the front seat, and Lammy says, as a precaution, he's going to read Tony his Miranda rights. You know, just since they're going to be talking about the murder. Tony says he understands. It's just a precaution. After about 15 minutes, they pull into a construction site the construction site, where Sharon's body was found. Detective Lammy tells Tony, there's someone here that has something to say to you. It's Jason. He's standing there in the construction site, surrounded by about a dozen cops. Police cruisers are parked all over. (laughs) 
It's at this moment that Tony must have realized this trip to see the New Hampshire State Police was not going to be like the last one. Last time, Tony was one of the guys. This time, he'd walked right into a trap. A scene staged by Detective Lammy on the very spot where Sharon Johnson's body was found. That day, Lammy hoped he could turn one confession into two and finally use that evidence to take down Ken Johnson. This is Bear Brook Season 2, A True Crime Story. I'm Jason Moon. added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. According to the police reports, Detective Lammy and Tony get out of the car and walk over to Jason. Lammy stands in between Jason and Tony in case it gets physical. He tells them, I don't want this turning into a freak show. Detective Lammy then has Jason repeat his confession to Tony. He's betting that the surprise of being confronted by a co-conspirator confessing to the crime at the spot where Lammy says they committed the crime, surrounded by a dozen cops, it will all convince Tony that the game is over. It was the kind of scene that would make for the perfect climax in a TV cop show. But it doesn't go according to plan. Tony says he doesn't even know who Jason is, even though they work together at high tech. He says Jason is crazy. Tony asks what's going on. But Lammy says if he wants to talk about it, He'll have to come with him to the police station. Tony is standing in a snow-covered construction site in rural New Hampshire, wearing just shorts and a T-shirt. He was flown here on the state police's dime 
He has no car of his own and no way to reach anyone else. He agrees and gets back in the car with Lammy. Once they get to the Bedford police station, Tony spends three hours in an interrogation room with Detective Lammy and other officers. And then Lammy's partner turns on a tape recorder. This is Sergeant Neil Scott in the Hampshire State Police speaking. The time, 1900 hours. The date is November 27th, 1989. The following recorded conversations are that of Anthony Tony Puff, present, is Sergeant Roland Lammy of the New Hampshire State Police, and myself, Neil Scott. Tony, are you aware that this is being recorded? Yes. Would you speak it up, please? Yes. Thank you. It's taken detectives a lot of work to get here. But Tony now tells them he's finally ready to make a confession. You have indicated to me, prior to us turning this tape on, that you are now ready to tell the whole truth, so help you God, about your involvement in the killing of of Sharon Johnson on July 28, 1988. Is that correct? Yes. Tony begins to tell a new story about his involvement in Sharon's murder. Tony says the story starts with a conversation between him and Ken one week before she was killed. He asked me if if I could help him figure out a way to kill his wife. And I thought... And her name is? Sharon Johnson. Okay. First I thought he was kidding. Okay. And I suggested a few ways. Okay. Just playing along with him, and then he told me he wasn't joking, he was serious. Uh Uh-huh. Tony says Ken offered him $10,000 to kill his wife. Tony says he thought about it for a day, then agreed to the job. Tony says he then reached out to Jason and offered him half the money, $5,000, to help him carry it out. Tony says it was his idea for Jason to play the role of Bob. He says he and Jason met with Sharon at the mall. We met her in the mall, and we asked her to go outside, come outside with us. Where in the mall? In the middle of the mall by the food court somewhere. I mean, I don't remember nothing. I don't know. Okay. The mood of Tony's interrogation could not be more different than what happened with Jason and his mom. There's no shouting on the tape. In fact, it's so quiet, you can hear what sounds like a clock ticking throughout the whole thing. And Tony, I'm not sure what the right word is to describe his affect. Flat, unremorseful, resigned, exhausted. Tony can't seem to remember all that much about the day of the murder. The interrogation is a halting, tedious process. But Lammy, who yelled at Jason to reach his breaking point as Jason sobbed, is patient, even gentle, as he coaxes Tony to keep talking. 
At one point, Lammy tells Tony, don't be ashamed to cry. Then we drove. I don't remember the places we drove. Jason told you where we drove. Mm-hmm. Then we went down to a Okay, what? I don't remember. It's hard for me to remember things. I, I All right. Well, do, do the best. This is very serious, as you know. I mean, there has to be. You have to explain how it is that that site was chosen, because Johnson shows up there, and he has to know where it's going to be. Who chooses that place, and how do you get there? Uh, he's the one who chose it. Because I didn't know where it was. How do you, you don't just accidentally run into them. I mean, how do you, you people get out there? Come on, Tony. Tony is not giving police the kind of detailed play-by-play they're looking for. But still, he is confirming the broad strokes of Jason's confession. Tony says after they meet Sharon at the mall, they force her into her car. Then Tony says he holds Sharon at knife point and makes her drive to the construction site. Anyway, we got there. She struggled. Jason drove the knife in her back, stabbed her again. I choked her fell to the ground and I I didn't her shirt was pulled off but I didn't pull it off I don't know how it got pulled off but I mm-hmm. didn't pull it off okay how many times did you stab her truthfully truthfully now Tony so one time she had to tell the truth because that's what you want to be doing you don't have to have the exact number of times I want to know how many times do you think you may have stabbed her a couple of times Tony tells police the knife used in the murder belonged to Lisa Johnson, Ken's adopted daughter, the mother of Tony's child. Tony says she might have known about the plot to kill Sharon, but can't say for sure. Tony says he got the knife from Ken and then gave it to Jason. That's all a pretty significant difference from Jason's confession, where he eventually says the knife was his and never mentions Lisa. Lammy no doubt recognizing this discrepancy, asks Tony, were there two knives used or just one? Tony says, just one. Uh, Was Johnson there? Explain how, where Johnson? Well, Johnson, he did show up. I don't know where he came from, but he was, I mean, I didn't see where he, which direction he came from, but he was there. Okay, and uh, did he, did he come before this began or after or during? He must have been there already. Because it came out right after it was over. Oh, he came out after it was over? Okay. Okay, continue. And what was said? Was, was Sharon uh, begging you to stop? Was she crying? She was, of course she was crying. She was in hysterics. What was, tell me things that she was saying. Why are we doing this to her? What did you say? I don't remember. 
That's another difference from the story Jason told. Jason said Ken and Sharon had a whole argument before she was stabbed. And now Tony is saying Ken emerged from somewhere nearby only afterwards. Tony says after they killed Sharon, he and Jason drove her green Subaru back to the mall and left it in the parking lot. Then he says they both drove in Jason's truck to Ken's house, where he paid them the $10,000. At that point, Tony says he and Jason parted ways. Near the end of the interrogation, Lammy uses a technique on Tony that he also used on Jason. He invokes the presence of a theoretical jury that will one day listen to the tape they're making. I want you to explain to the jury, if you will, and I know it's very difficult to do this, but I must ask you to express how you feel as a human being, as Tony Puff. How does Tony Puff feel about having participated in the murder of Sharon Johnson? I feel bad, and I'm sorry it took place. And I wish it would never even happen. If there was any way that I could switch, I could switch places, I'd do it. Tony's taped interrogation finishes around 8 p.m. Tony landed at the airport at 3, so he spent five hours with the cops by this point. And it's not over. Police keep talking to him that night, periodically, though they never turn on another tape recorder. Two hours later, Tony changes his story. Now he says Lisa Johnson was involved in the murder. He says she was there and saw Sharon die. Then, 40 minutes later, Tony tries to recant everything. He says none of it is true, not even what he told Detective Lammy months ago about moving Sharon's car as a favor for Ken. It's somewhere around 11 p.m. And finally, according to the police report, Tony says, Look, everything I told you on the tape was the truth. I feel bad. I'm tired. That's why I went backwards. Don't bother asking me anything more because I don't remember anything more. All this time, Jason has been at the police station too. He recorded that second taped confession while Tony was flying in. Then after the showdown at the construction site, Police also brought Jason back to the Bedford PD. And for the rest of the day, Lammy has been bouncing back and forth between questioning Jason and Tony. Around midnight, Tony and Jason are both arrested. Tony's been with police for nine hours this day, Jason for about 12 hours. By the way, you can see a timeline of all the interrogations on our website, bearbrookpodcast.com. But Lammy is not done with Jason yet. He has one last scene to stage with him. This one, down in Rhode Island, with Ken Johnson. 
The next morning, just after 10 a.m., police in Warren, Rhode Island, arrive at the Country Inn restaurant. Ken is apparently at work inside. The Warren police chief told the newspapers Ken showed, quote, no surprise or shock whatsoever at being arrested. Ken is brought to the local police station. And not long after he gets there, Detective Lammy arrives from New Hampshire. He's brought Jason with him. Lammy brings Jason into the room where Ken is being held. According to Lammy's police report, Ken stares at Jason. Lammy then has Jason repeat his confession again to Ken. Jason gets as far as the part where he says he saw Ken at the construction site. At the mention of this, Ken flings out his arms in disgust and tells Lammy to get Jason out of his sight. Over a year after Sharon was murdered, Lammy's investigation had produced two confessions and an alleged murder weapon, Jason's pocket knife. And it all pointed to the original prime suspect, Ken, as the mastermind behind the plot to kill Sharon. It was front page news. Tony Puff, Ken Johnson, and Jason Carroll were all charged with capital murder. At the time, the penalty was death. Detective Roland Lammy had lived up to his reputation. He'd solved the case. He'd crafted the narrative about who killed Sharon Johnson. Thank you for listening to Bearbrook Season 2. This podcast took more than a year to report and lots of resources. One way to show how much you value local journalism and long-form investigative reporting is by giving to New Hampshire Public Radio. It takes just a few minutes and makes a big difference. To give now, click the link in the show notes, and thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro. 
cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You've now heard the official narrative of Sharon Johnson's murder. How it was put together out of a few clues and a tangle of changing and sometimes conflicting confessions from two 19-year-olds. To recap, here's what the police say happened. Ken Johnson wanted his wife dead because he was deep in gambling debt, and Sharon's pension would cover that debt and then some. He hired Tony Puff, the 19-year-old who dated his daughter, to kill Sharon. Tony recruited his co-worker, Jason Carroll, to help. The three of them used a story about a fictional Bob to lure Sharon to the mall. Tony and Jason kidnapped her there and brought her to a construction site where Ken was waiting. And then Jason and Tony stabbed Sharon with Jason's pocket knife, and Ken and Tony strangled her. If some of that sounds different than what Jason and Tony confessed to, it's because it is. Jason made yet more changes to his confession during his final taped interrogation, including that Ken choked but never stabbed Sharon. But if the state was going to take these confessions to trial, they had to settle on a single narrative. Did Ken stab her or didn't he? Was Lisa involved or wasn't she? And so they made some storytelling choices. They made choices about when to use the details from one confession over another when those details conflicted. And they made choices about what statements were true or false when Jason and Tony gave multiple different answers to the same question. So some things got cut, like Ken stabbing Sharon himself or Lisa being involved. And to be clear, as far as Lisa goes, there is no evidence besides Tony's brief statement that she had anything to do with Sharon's murder. Lisa wasn't even living in New Hampshire at the time. She'd moved to Rhode Island a few months before Sharon's murder. We reached out to Lisa, but never heard back. Together, those storytelling choices add up to the narrative the state still stands by to this day. But, of course, it was not the only version of the story to be told. The official narrative was challenged just as soon as Jason Carroll got a lawyer. Can you talk to me about your, your first uh, introduction to the case? The, the, the first thing that happened was Jason's mom came in to meet with me, and I knew right away that there was going to be a problem. This is retired judge and former criminal defense attorney Cliff Kinghorn. He's an ex-Marine, got a Purple Heart in Vietnam. Until Cliff was appointed to represent Jason, no one outside law enforcement really knew what role Jason's parents had played. How his mom, Karen, and his stepdad, Jack, allowed Jason to be questioned by police without an attorney for at least 13 and a half hours over a four-day period how Karen Carroll actively and aggressively participated in one of Jason's interrogations. When Cliff learned what had happened, he was horrified. Then he took a meeting with Jason's parents that stunned him even more. 
In Cliff Kinghorn's office, Karen and Jack Carroll share a detail that no one else knows about. Something allegedly left off the police reports. Something that would help explain why Karen and Jack did what they did. Karen tells Cliff a deal for Jason's cooperation has already been worked out with police. As long as Jason testifies against Ken, Karen says Jason has been promised a very light sentence, something like seven or eight years at a federal prison where he could even get a college degree while inside. Karen says she and Jason's stepfather had been promised this by Detective Roland Lammy. And I'm thinking to myself, what la-la land are we living in? That's never going to happen. Cliff and Jason's parents start to argue. Karen basically said to me, we're going to do this my way. You know, all kinds of promises have been made to him, and I trust Roland Lammy explicitly, and we got into kind of a heated discussion Karen and Jack Carroll actually described this meeting with Cliff in the outline tape, the conversation Karen and Jack recorded with Detective Lammy just 11 days after this meeting with Cliff. And Karen tells Lammy just how terribly the meeting went. He just, he really started in very hard on me. Um, My being in law enforcement seemed to be quite an issue. Um, How could I possibly sit there and let my son spill his guts and tell everything without consulting an attorney? Um, Whose side was I on? Was I on Jason's side or was I on the police's side? I mean, it was basically, you know, I know he needs a lawyer, I suppose, but... We're, I'm calling the shots, we're calling the shots, and we know what we're doing, and this is the way, this is the way it's going to be. And I said, I'm sorry, Karen, but you need to understand something. I don't represent you. I don't represent your husband. We're going to represent Jason, and that's our job. And uh, we walked out very upset. I don't think we said three words together to each other all the way home. This was supposed to be a, a defense attorney for our son, and we felt that he was going to hang him off the drum. He was out for his own glory, and we didn't yeah. want that. We, we told him, yeah. we told him that Jason wanted to turn state's evidence, and he insisted not. The argument in Cliff Kinghorn's office was an epic clash of worldviews. A cop and a defense attorney each with fundamentally different understandings of how the criminal justice system works, both believing their approach was in Jason's best interest. And a little context here. Generally speaking, cops don't have the authority to make promises of immunity. An offer like that can only come from a prosecutor. And it's also risky for the police. A promise of immunity could render a suspect's confession involuntary in the eyes of the court. But it matters exactly what is said. A detective who makes an explicit promise of immunity? That's usually not okay. But a detective who suggests that cooperation might lead to leniency? That's not uncommon. 
and it's a legal gray area. Detective Lammy, for his part, flatly denied ever making promises of any kind to Jason or his parents. But the Carrolls would later testify to a jury that Lammy made the promise to them the morning after Jason's first interrogation. In that testimony, the Carrolls say immunity for Jason became their objective. And to make that happen, they needed to make sure he cooperated. So later that same day, when Karen is brought into the room during Jason's second interrogation, and Detective Lammy is yelling at him that he's not telling the truth, Karen said it scared her. If Jason held something back, he wouldn't get immunity. He needs to talk. He needs to tell them everything for his own good. These guys are going to help you. We're not going to sit and jump on your ass and shoot you now. I feel like I'm going to jump on my ass and shoot you now. We want the truth out of you. Nobody is going to be able to help you anymore until you come forth with all the information that they need. Later in the interrogation, you can hear Karen tell her son, you still have a chance to save your ass. My dear, I don't want to see you go to prison. The longer you go on telling the truth, the harder it's going to be, and the worse it's going to be on yourself. you got to still have a chance to save your ass. My dear, I don't want to see you go to prison. Jason says, I don't want to go to prison either, Ma. Karen says, then tell us every goddamn thing you know. Here's what Karen told me about what she was thinking during Jason's interrogation. What was going through my mind was, if Jason had something to tell him, then he was going to tell him. But there was that word immunity rolling around in my head. I'm not thinking that that's got to come from the AG's office. I'm just thinking, this is my son. They're trying to pin this murder on him, and the word immunity is rolling around in my head. As Jason's confessions change and become more and more incriminating, the Carols say Lammy's promise changes too, from full immunity to a short prison sentence. Still, To Karen and Jack, it felt like the best option for Jason, who otherwise could face the death penalty. When Jason's attorney, Cliff Kinghorn, told the Carrolls that Lammy's promises were a fantasy, the Carrolls simply didn't believe that. Karen trusted Lammy, a fellow police officer, the one many considered to be the best. And so, for weeks after that meeting, Karen continued to collude with Detective Lammy. She actively worked to undermine Jason's attorneys. Karen would talk to Jason in jail, learn what his attorneys were telling him, and then she'd call Detective Lammy and relay that information to him. She even convinced Jason to write a letter in jail to the prosecutors. In the letter, Jason says he wants to testify for the state, but his attorneys weren't letting him. Karen dictated the letter to Jason over the phone. With the help of Lammy, Karen delivered the letter by hand to the attorney general's office, to the lawyers who were prosecuting her son. And then there's the outline tape. 
today uh, we have prepared an outline uh, on a board in the conference room by which uh, 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 the outline will be utilized to present uh, this um, taped statement. Lammy hoped the tape would undermine any potential argument from Jason's attorneys that the confessions were coerced. And Karen and Jack Carroll helped make it. They recorded it with police in December of 1989, just weeks after Jason's arrest and 11 days after the Carroll's big fight with Jason's lawyer. Uh, you understand that the reason we've made this tape today is because uh, we are know by uh, other forces and uh, uh, their activity that uh, uh, in, in the long road ahead that uh, there were going to be continued and repeated attacks that the police coerced, intimidated, promised, threatened, made deals with Jason Carroll at any time during the confession uh, taking the confession uh, decision-making process. Detective Lammy knew the voluntariness of Jason's confessions would be an issue, possibly from the intel he was getting from Karen about the legal strategy of Jason's lawyers. And so, to protect his investigation, Lammy got Jack and Karen Carroll on record saying that the police made no promises or threats to Jason. The thing that Cliff and Karen would later say the whole fight at his office was about. Karen tells Lammy it never happened. Jack tells Lammy in the outline tape a promise to Jason wasn't so much as insinuated. And Karen agrees that when she took part in Jason's second interrogation, she was acting as Jason's mother, not as a police officer. These were all statements that would later help the state fight off challenges by Jason's lawyers to the validity of his confession. For Lammy, the outline tape was a rare instance of two people putting their personal and familial relationships aside in the interest of justice. Uh, I must tell you that uh, it's extremely rewarding to, to sit here and listen to uh, two parents uh, who is conscientious uh, and is fair in their judgment and, and appraisal of this entire situation as you two have been, and we do appreciate that. For people who believe Jason is innocent, the outline tape is tragic. Here are Jason's parents, the people supposed to protect him, helping police put the finishing touches on his wrongful conviction. Maybe most damning of all from this point of view is how Karen and Jack both describe Jason calling them from jail and, again, trying to tell them he didn't do it, to which his parents basically say, knock it off. He went on to tell us that, you know, he wasn't guilty, and again, his father and I stressed to him the importance of telling the truth He says, you try to compromise with the truth. He says, well, okay, what if, what would happen if I, if I am really innocent of this and I just go and try to make a deal on that statement? And he says, down the road a year or two, say the state investigators find the real man who did this. You know, what, what would they do then? And we tried to explain that to him 
At that point, we both knew that he was just pussyfooting around. And uh, it's my opinion, I'm not going to speak for my wife, but it's my opinion that the boy is guilty. Right. And I've known him for 19, 20 years now. Mm -hmm. it's my, he is guilty and he needs to be uh, punished. Right. People in Jason's camp today have a lot to say about what his parents did. Most of the criticism is directed at Karen because of her role in the interrogation. She was a cop. She, of all people, knows better. My, my children are 30 and 26. If they were ever hauled off to a police department, first thing I would say is, lawyer up, done. I've told Jason this. I, there's a part of me that doesn't have a whole lot of respect for his mom. He had nobody on his side to protect him. Where were his protectors? For Jason, the feelings are more complicated. I mean, I still, I still talk to her. But it's, it's not quite the same as it will ever be. Jason says he and his mom have never really been able to talk about what happened freely. Their only contact since the arrest has been in jail and prison visiting rooms with guards watching or on prison phones where they could be listening. Not the best environment for a painful heart-to-heart. The story and the saga is not done between her and I. It's, it's far from it. It's just that for now it's on hold. And what's going what's gonna to happen is it's like if I walk out of here and get up, uh, her and I are going to sit down and have a long, long talk. And she's probably not going to like some of the things i got to say. Jack Carroll died in 2006. Karen, for her part, now acknowledges the role she played and says she deeply regrets it. But she also lays much of the blame at the feet of Detective Roland Lammy. I was not only a police officer, but I was a mother. You know? And mothers will do whatever they have to do to try to protect the kids. And things affect everybody differently. And I think he just took full advantage of my noodle just slipped off the plate into the abyss. Cliff Kinghorn, Jason's lawyer who argued with Karen that day in his office, who once questioned whose side Karen was on, today says that this was not her fault. You know, Karen helped them, but, you know, in my heart I always thought she felt she was doing the right thing for Jason. Um, And, I mean, Roland knew what he was doing, and he realized that he had someone that had a great deal of influence on her son that he could use to get at what he wanted. I never doubted for a minute that she was made promises. Lammy made promises to her that he could never possibly keep. About seven weeks after the Carols had their blow-up with Cliff, the reality of Jason's situation takes hold. Lammy's alleged promises of leniency do not come to pass. 
the state of New Hampshire indicts Jason on charges of capital murder. Lammy and the prosecutors Karen had put her trust in are now trying to execute her son. And meanwhile, Jason is back to denying any involvement in the murder, a position he will maintain for the next 34 years. Jason refuses to testify against Ken or Tony. Karen and Jack start to cooperate with Jason's attorneys. Eventually, they will testify several times as witnesses for the defense. On the stand, they will say that the outline tape was a huge lie, orchestrated and scripted by Detective Lammy. They will beg a judge and jury, sometimes through tears, to believe them that Detective Lammy promised their son immunity. But it won't work. The prosecutor will simply point out that the Carrolls are admitting that they're willing to lie if they think it will help Jason. And the prosecutor will say that's exactly what they're doing now. Jack and Karen Carroll will be too late to stop what they helped start. Jason Carroll will be convicted of murder. I am like, why did I let this happen? Why wasn't I stronger? Why couldn't I see what he was doing? Why, 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 why? Coming up in the second half of A True Crime Story. I was just reading and laying out the case. I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know what wasn't right. And what did you think it was leading to? Like, did you have an objective in mind as you were doing this? The truth. That's, that's a big accusation for someone to come out and admit that they did something when they didn't do it. Uh, I thought he was guilty. I thought there was no question about whether he was guilty or not. I mean, one of the best things that came out of Puff's mouth was when they were filming him coming out of the police station in the morning, and uh, they said, do you have anything to say or something? And he says, yeah, not guilty. When they started to suggest that this is the only way that this is going to work, your mind says, okay, well, you have to trust them. You believe that you're helping your accusers help you. People have a really, really hard time reconciling with the fact that someone would confess to something that they didn't do. Um, and they assume that if they said that they did it, it's because they actually did it. A True Crime Story is reported and produced by me, Jason Moon. It's edited by Katie Culinary. Additional reporting and research by Paul Kuno Booth. Editing help from Lauren Chuljan, Daniela Ali, Sarah Plord, Taylor Quimby, Mara Hoplamazian, and Todd Bookman. Our news director is Dan Barrick. 
Our director of podcasts is Rebecca Lavoie. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman. Sarah Plord created our original artwork as well as our website, bearbrookpodcast.com. Photos and videos by Gabby Lozada. Original music for the series was created by me, Jason Moon. Bearbrook is a production of the Document Team at New Hampshire Public Radio. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.